Welcome back to Civil Action. This is Brian Kabatek speaking to you. Civil Action usually covers recent cases that have come down in the plaintiff's world that involve uh, the California Court of Appeal, the California Supreme Court, the Ninth Circuit, the United States Supreme Court. But occasionally we get special guests and we talk about important issues that are out there. So today we have both a very special guest and we're also going to talk about the uh, most topical issue of the day in the legal community, which is business interruption insurance, the insurance company's failure to pay claims, failure to consider claims, what's going on with that. And really today, uh, our very special guest is going to talk a little bit about how it's affecting his businesses and uh, the, the sort of hospitality, food, entertainment world out there. Uh, before we do that, remember, you're always free to contact us at uh, kbklawyers.com. This is Brian Kabatek. My email is bsk at kbklawyers.com. You also can find us where you usually find podcasts like Spotify and Apple. Uh, so also joining me today is Michael Childress, one of my colleagues here at our firm, uh, an expert on insurance property with about 40 years experience handling insurance property claims, just not all across the United States, but across the world with an international practice, suing insurance companies and making insurance companies pay claims that they seem to like to refuse to pay. Uh, so uh, our special guest today is Philip Camino. Philip, uh, greetings and thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me, guys. Morning, so let's we'll start by uh, having you introduce yourself and explain a little bit about your your background and the operations that you run and and what you've done with respect to what I kind of call generally the hospitality and restaurant business. Yeah, certainly. Um, again, thanks for having me, guys, and you know, happy to be here. Um, yeah, it started when I uh, when I moved to Los Angeles about 12 years ago. Um, we were just talking about this before the podcast started. Um, kind of had a varied childhood in terms of where I grew up. I actually grew up in uh, South Florida, just outside of Miami. Um, and my father was uh, working for RBC, the Royal Bank of Canada at the time. And we ended up uh, in South Florida where they were starting to expand their business. And then we ended up uh, moving to... Uh, Spain and lived in Madrid for a number of years where, you know, he expanded the uh, RBC brand into that marketplace and branches and was one of the, was one of the first people to actually take a, a brand, uh, a North American bank brand and kind of move it into Europe um, during that time period. So it was an interesting time for the family. Um, got transferred back to uh, Toronto, which is where RBC is headquartered after that and ended up going to high school and then college in Canada and uh, spent a few years after college in Toronto working. Um, and then, you know, as most people do, just, you know, you get sick of the weather. And I didn't, I didn't necessarily want to be uh, in that market for the rest of my life because it was just too cold. And I uh, made my way west and landed in uh, L.A. in 2009 um, and, you know, partnered up with a couple of guys who, uh, who I'd met over the years. And, you know, we, we came together and, and started to open restaurants together, really, in the L.A. market. And, you know, once you have one or two that, that work and uh, they make sense, um, it really kind of opens up, you know, the floodgates to a degree where, you know, investors start to trust you and you've got a little bit of notoriety and you've got a name in the marketplace. And, you know, the first deal is always the hardest. But, you know, once you get that one working and investors are happy and, you know, and, and things are flowing, um, it really allows you to do, you know, many more. And, you know, we've been able to build got eight now um, ventures, 
uh, all restaurants. We're starting to talk about getting into hotels and looking at how we finance that and locations and whatnot. Um, but primarily the business is, is focused on, uh, on restaurants and restaurant hospitality for right now. Um, so we have eight, another three opening actually in the second half of 2020, as soon wow. as we get out of the, uh, the COVID mix. So we'll be, you know, by the end of this year, we'll be at 11 up and operating. And um, so, nothing, nothing like timing. First, you arrive in Los Angeles in the middle of the economic downturn right. and uh, you weather that. And we'll talk about some of the businesses that you had in a moment that were operating before COVID-19 came along. And now you're planning to open up some some restaurants and, and then sort of come along COVID-19. So let's first start talking about um, the restaurants and operations that you had that were operating uh, before. Before you know, March came along and everything got shut down. Yeah, so it's been. Um, I mean, we've had we've had one of the restaurants, which is in West Hollywood, the Hudson, since two thousand nine. I mean, that was the first one that we opened, and that's a that's been a, a really great project, and was really the catalyst to you know everything else that I've done in Los Angeles. Um, highly successful project in West Hollywood. Um, you know that that really the success of that project really allowed. Uh, that group and myself specifically to, to kind of spread out from that project and start to open other ones. So, um, you know, I went and got into uh, a joint venture with a company called Earth Bar, and I'm, you know, I'm the sole franchisee of that brand. Um, I, you know, I've opened one store with them, and we're about to open another store on the Venice Boardwalk. It's actually in construction right now. Um, in a joint venture with a brand called Stout Burgers and Beers, which is, you know, you know, we're at five locations together and a couple more down the, you know, coming down the pipe there. So, you know, it's a, it's, it's been, it's been a, an interesting time period because pre COVID and I'll, and I'll take it all the way back actually to when I moved out here, 2009, that was an interesting time period because when we opened these businesses, we were really able to kind of hone our skills, if you will, as operators Mm. working within the framework of, a contracted economy. Um, obviously coming out of 2008 and into 2009, when we did open that property, um, you know, value was on everyone's mindset. Um, as a consumer, everyone was looking for value. Everyone was, you know, looking to save dollars and kind of be frugal to a degree. So, you know, coming up with a concept that aligned to that, that was, you know, great value and a stylish concept. Um, that really, you know, that really was what, the catalyst for that project was and that and, and we were able to sort of hone our skills within this contracted economic environment and learn how to operate you know when the floodgates of cash were not necessarily turned on you know and you fast forward into you know the 2010s which was obviously a, a great period of economic um, expansion and you know the, the the floodgates open up investor purse strings open up and we're able to open you know a number of new restaurants and really we're able to operate as you should really as a restaurant with, you know, good cash flows, being net cash flow positive and not necessarily having to watch every single dollar, but still having honed yourself in those tighter economic conditions. As you move into the, 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 the more favorable economic conditions, you still take those lessons with you and it really makes you a better operator. And then you kind of fast forward into what we're dealing with today with COVID you know, you pull all those lessons back, right? All the lessons of, you know, being a very, you know, frugal operator, someone that has to look at every dollar, look at every piece of waste, 
you know, every single hour of labor, every single dollar that's going out the door from a cost of goods standpoint, um, it really does make you better. And I was, you know, saying before we got on the air, I think in general, entrepreneurial people, I think are going to be, or people that have gone through tough times as entrepreneurs are going to have a little bit of an easier time, perhaps in a COVID like situation, because they're used to dealing with things that maybe aren't perfect. And they're used to dealing with things that are outside of their box or outside of their bubble uh, quite often, uh, almost on a daily basis. So, so let's, yeah, go let, ahead. let's talk a little bit about um, what happened when these closure orders came. And, you know, from your personal experience, I think our listeners would be interested in hearing about what it's like when, you know, it isn't just a law firm shutting down where you can operate from home, but man, it's your, it is your business shutting down. Tell us that experience. I looked at it. Uh, I looked at it actually. I think on the complete opposite spectrum as most people did. Like I was alluding to before, I look at these things almost as you have to. You have to view it as a as an opportunity in, in almost every aspect. So a couple of things. When the closure order started to come, um, I, I didn't even for really one moment consider that we were going to be able to make economic sense out of doing delivery only. So immediately, I closed everything down until further notice. So. I didn't. I didn't really believe, and I and I modeled it um, pretty quickly as soon as I understood that there would be the ability for takeout and uh, and pickup orders and delivery. Um, and I didn't really believe right from the get go that it was going to be economically feasible over any period of time uh, for a business to be net cash flow positive. There's too many factors in delivery that make it unfeasible as a core uh, business, namely the commissions. And, and also the packaging makes the cost of goods go up a little bit more. And to a degree, you can't predict what those, uh, what those sales are going to be. Whereas in a, in a full service restaurant, you can look at things like your reservations. You can look at historical sales data. You can look at what you did, you know, in this week last month or this week last quarter or this week last year for that matter and, and really understand what your sales are going to be. Uh, or to, 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 a, to a, you know, to some degree, you'll, you'll understand, you know, where you're going to be from a, from a sales standpoint that the, that, that case can't be made for delivery. Um, and, and so that really informs a couple of other large costs within a, within a restaurant business, mainly your prime costs, which are cost of goods and labor. Uh, right. and if you can't predict your cost of goods and labor against your sales, if you can't make an accurate prediction of, of that, it really makes it hard to operate at a net cash flow uh, basis. So then you, then you ask yourself as an operator, well, maybe I'm doing it for another reason. Maybe I'm doing it because I want to keep employees that I really want, or I've been with me for a long time and you're doing it for that reason. And then you're sort of back ending that and saying, okay, well, I can go get PPP money or I can, you know, look at some of these other funding programs that are in the marketplace and uh, hopefully, um, you know, make that make up that downfall on the back end. But you, you know, you're going to have to put out financially in order to make to get to that point. So I decided just not to pursue that. So we didn't open anywhere. I had one one store. I had a I have an Earth Bar on Ocean Avenue in Santa Monica um, that we did leave open, but we left it with one employee. It's a small store. The sales actually have jumped considerably from a delivery standpoint. That store is really set up well for delivery and pickup. It's a tiny little location, 600 square feet. Um, and sales have jumped considerably. So that was the one where, you know, we were doing a lot of delivery there anyway. 
Um, and it's not set up as a full service restaurant with all the prep hours and all the back of house staff and all the serving staff and whatnot. It can really be operated by one person at that sales level. Oh, wow. So from that standpoint, that one did pencil and we decided to leave that one open. And, and really my director of operations, Scott has been, has been in there every day, just operating that store, um, on his own and has been doing a great job. So, um, yeah, I think you have to look at it a couple ways. I, I, I just, just to, you know, go down that path a little bit further. I look at it from a standpoint of what's going to happen when we reopen. Okay. So maybe this is 60 days, maybe it's 90 days. It looks like we're LA in particular is probably going to be one of the last counties in California to reopen. And who knows what these capacity restrictions look like. But when you start to uh, look at what the marketplace is going to look like for restaurants coming out of this, I mean, I've seen predictions as high as 50 or 60% of independently owned restaurants not reopening um, in this climate. And so, you know, even if that number is lower, even if it's 25% of the restaurants don't reopen, and we've already seen a slew of large restaurants and well-known restaurants, um, including Swingers and the Pikey and a couple of very well-known uh, Jewish delis that are just not going to reopen. Um, you know, that's going to change the dynamics and the economics of the overall marketplace quite substantially. You take 25, you take 25% of the restaurants out of the marketplace and, and there's a lot of downstream effects of that. And for me, I think a lot of those effects are positive. So that's sort of a good lead in here to our discussion about the business insurance, business interruption insurance yep. and, and where we are with that today. And I, I will tell you that as someone here who, uh, used to own, and actually operate a restaurant for almost 10 years. That's me. Um, I know that, you know, even in the best of times, the restaurant business for most operators, specifically ones who run, you know, small operations, one-off operations, unless you're, you know, a celebrity chef or a superstar, it's it's tough in the best circumstances. So considering that you could lose 25% of these small business owners, um, you know, is devastating. It's devastating to them personally. It's devastating to the economy, the jobs, all of the, that down stream that flows from that. Um, and one reason people certainly buy insurance is to protect themselves in uh, the times of something coming along that's unexpected, that they didn't cause, it isn't their fault. And, you know, obviously the most um, easy example of that would be if a fire raced through your business and shut your business down. Terrible, terrible, terrible. But in those cases, you have an expectation that your insurance company is not going to only come in and fix your business for you, but they're right. also going to cover um, your losses. And so that really leads us to to this today. And before, you know, Michael sort of jumps in here, Philip, just tell us generally your experience, because my understanding is you have a traveler's company called Northfield uh, that you made a claim with them and they pretty quickly denied. It. They did uh, that. Yeah, we, we, we put a claim in, I think, almost immediately uh, after the, the closure order uh, was issued. And on the, on the advice of uh, my insurance agent, who's great and has been my guy for you know a long time on the insurance side, we did put that in. And it was, I, I mean, my belief is that they were issuing blanket denials. And, and I, you know, I did, believe I, did, yeah, I did get a phone call, I did get a letter. Uh, but yeah, they, yeah, it was denied almost immediately. So did your agent take it covered? Pardon me? Say again, Michael, say again. Did your agent think that that uh, your claim should have been paid? I don't. No, I don't believe so. 
I don't believe so. I, I think that um, I think that 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 whole side, that the insurance side um, of the business, is is kind of uh, on, on the belief that. Uh, this is a, you know, the pandemic does not fall within the interruption uh, claim due to the virus exclusion. Uh, that well, is, I think that's Michael the- and I probably are a little more conspiratorial than that in our thinking with the, <laughs> that, that the, the insurance industry already knows that they've got trouble with their claims about it not being covered and that they circled the wagons early because, you know, there's, there's certainly a number of us who deal in this world on a regular basis representing policyholders to think that one of the tenets of the insurance industry is to sort of spread the word that things Absolutely. aren't covered so people then start believing that they're not covered. Michael, you want to talk about that? Yeah, so you know, one of one of the one of the main tenets of the of the McKinsey Consulting advice to Allstate back in the day that changed how insurance claims operate is messaging is public relations is marketing and and every time there's a disaster they get way out ahead of it and start seeding the messaging and the communications with with the with the belief that it's not covered and it's very very effective because 95 percent of claimants walk away and and don't make a claim and don't test only five percent do what you did and 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 actually hire a professional uh that's unbiased to advise them Mm -hmm. So it's especially true with the agents. The agents are the first line of defense in the insurance industry always. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as a matter of fact, they they actually have no authority to interpret policies and are restricted from doing so by most of their contracts with the insurance companies. So, sure. Um, Yet we've seen plenty of insurance agents who have outright told their uh, insured as a result of this, don't bother, it's not covered, look at your policy, it's not covered. And in fact, one insurance company, we even intercepted one of their bulletins that they send to their agents. Oh, wow. Uh, effectively instructing them to do that. Oh, wow. Absolutely. Interesting. And, so, and, you know, give us an update where we are now today on the insurance coverage issues with respect to the pandemic. Well, so uh, litigations have been filed all across the country to test this notion. And, and you know, the initial messaging was that. Um, that the closure orders, the shutdown orders didn't constitute direct physical loss or damage and therefore didn't trigger insurance at all. Um, that argument seems to be being beaten back a little bit. And so the insurers have, have landed where, where Philip suggests they were going to land. And that is that, uh, it's all excluded by the virus exclusion. Um, the interesting question that I that I have for you, Philip, is: yeah. Do you have any virus in any of your facilities that's causing you to close down? Not that I'm aware of at this point. Of course, of course. <laughs> and so, you know, it, we're dealing with property insurance here. Mm-hmm. We're dealing with property insurance insuring specific properties and, and, and specific operations. And clearly, the virus exclusion exists to. Uh, where it's impacting specific properties and specific operations by by its presence exists to exclude that, but but uh, there's no way that it exists to exclude on an omnibus general basis uh, the way that they're trying to apply it. Agree. Also, if I could jump in and ask a quick question here, Philip, I, 
I'm assuming that the reason you shut your businesses down was because of the the county, city, state orders, not because there was some kind of virus, right? Well, I mean, I think it's a combination of factors, but certainly the the stay at home order and the you know the orders for there to be no consumers out in the marketplace, absolutely. Uh, I think secondarily, it's there's a fear. I mean, once there's a stay at home order issued, there's a fear amongst consumers of of leaving and being consumers. Um, and until that's lifted, I don't think that it's a it's a positive operating environment for any business. So it's certainly not related to having a virus inside of the actual building that's being insured. It's a, you know, it's a circumstance of, you know, is it, is the state authority, the government and the governor um, issuing an order that is essentially forcing businesses not to be in operation and for consumers not to leave their homes and be consumers uh, in the, in the traditional way. So no, I a hundred percent. I mean, look, from a standpoint of uh, a business practice, you know, eth- Ethically, is it the right position to take as the insurance companies? I, I would say no. But on the other side of things, from a you know, if you're looking at it from a dollars and cents standpoint, from a business standpoint, I mean, they almost have to. Um, and, and I think what they're banking on is, like you said before, ninety five percent of people aren't going to challenge it. They're just going to you know they're going to look for other ways to cover their loss or look for other ways to keep their business alive. Um, and 5% of people are going to go after it. Um, most people won't challenge very much as we've seen from this entire pandemic and these stay at home orders. Most people are just going to do what they're told. Um, and that in most small business owners kind of fall into that category as well. So I think they're banking on the fact that even if they have to pay out to 5% of the policyholders out there, it's a whole hell of a lot better than paying out a hundred percent of them. Right. Well, I think that's absolutely correct. Yeah, and in fact, that's the insurance environment that we currently live in uh, worldwide. Um, And it all changed in the mid '90s. You know, back prior to that, insurance companies used to pay claims, and they and they would err on the side of of uh, covering loss and damage. And and it was only when they decided to turn their claims departments into profit centers that it all got sideways and weird, and 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 resulted in the current environment that we live in. the best analogy I can think of, Philip, is is you know when the when the Woolsey fire happened and they, and they shut down Malibu and they and and there were there were orders uh, by the public authorities limiting access to Malibu. Nobody could get into Malibu um, as a result of the fire. Those shutdowns were clearly covered. So what's different ab- about this pandemic? It's exactly the same. Um, it's the, the governor is, is using his emergency powers to protect the populace. And just like in the case of the Woolsey fire, uh, it should be covered unless of course you've got virus in your facility. Look, I think that the, the reality is that insurance co- policies cover civil closure orders and it's, it's a specific coverage. And if their argument is, it's the virus. It's going to depend on how your policy is written. Some policies are going to be written to prohibit what would be a concurrent cause. Some policies are not. Some policies treat the civil authority um, uh, portion of the policy as separate coverage and treat it that way, which, you know, we see that. I mean, I think we've seen, Michael, out of the, the people we've either consulted or who have hired us in the last six weeks, the vast majority of policies we believe are covered. Um, And I think that at least they're covered under the civil authority order. 
and I think the insurance industry knows it, and that's probably why they're on Capitol Hill right now talking to Congress. Well, exactly right. Mm-hmm. Exactly right. Well, I think if you're any any vendor, and I look at you know I look at an insurance company as a vendor because that's where they appear on my you know my P and L and on my 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 banking and accounting statements. You have to look at it from the standpoint of when there's twenty five to fifty percent, depending on who you're who you're listening to or you know who who the authority is on that stat. When there's twenty five to fifty percent less small businesses in the marketplace it's going to change the dynamics dramatically. Like you take 50% of the restaurants out of the marketplace, that's 50% less clients for insurance companies, right? That's 50% less customers for, uh, for a a Cisco or us foods or any vendor who's selling products to a restaurant or hospitality company. And so I think that one of the outcomes of this is going to be the dynamic between, let's say, uh, an independently owned restaurant and one of their key vendors is going to change dramatically in the restaurant's favor. Because when you have 50% less clients, you have to be nicer to the clients that you have. So I, right. I think there's going to be kind of what I was alluding to before is there's going to be a little bit of a shift in the dynamic between all, you know, all of the restaurants and all of the hospitality and small business um, that exist in an economy. They're going to, they're going to have to uh, vendors for that matter are going to have to, treat and do a better job with the smaller number of customers that they're going to end up with is don't get me wrong. It might come back, but for the next foreseeable period of time, like Cisco's got 25 to 50% less customers on day one. Right. right? So one thing that's kind of come out of this entire experience is that there are two food chains in the country. One that goes to, you know, direct consumers like grocery stores and farmers markets and little neighborhood stores. And then another food chain that goes through, you know, Cisco and the other um, the restaurant depot companies and people like that who supply the, the hospitality industry, the restaurant industry, cafeterias, you know, f- mass production of food. And that is all but stopped, I guess, right now. Absolutely. Exactly. Absolutely. Absolutely. So let's take the last couple of minutes here and um, ask you to tell us. Uh, what your plan would be to reopen? I mean, how would you like to see this happen? How do you envision it? What's your prognostication, prognostication about it? How do you see it? So I'm, I'm curious from, from something you must think about every day, every hour of every day. Well, the first thing is I'm in absolutely no rush to reopen. I'm not in a, I'm not in a rush to be back open in two weeks or four weeks or by June 1st or July 1st. Um, I believe that there's going to be a slow reopening. I think LA is going to be the last county, if not the last, one of the last in California to reopen um, fully. And I also believe that there's going to be capacity restrictions imposed when you do end up reopening. And I know in Texas, they're saying it's 25% or 10 people per 500 square feet of dining room space. So, you know, if you're in a small restaurant space, that's, that's a little daunting because you're not going to be able to fill your room up. I, I fortunately, most of my restaurants are larger. So, you know, we're going to be able to fill that, fill those rooms up a little bit more easily than some of the smaller people will be because we have more square footage. But like I said, I think the over, the overarching macro factors are going to be the following. There's going to be less competition. There's going to be less restaurants. So I'm going to be competing against less people, which is a good thing for me. Um, Mm -hmm. there's going to be more of a supply of labor because again, there's going to be 
less places for people to work. And there's going to be a lot of people looking for work. So what does that mean on the labor side? It means we're going to be able to pick some all-stars up. I feel like this is, we're almost going into a, a draft here where there's wow. going to be a lot of people who are out there who are looking and a lot of really good people out there looking. And I think we're going to be able to kind of pick and choose and put together really, really strong teams. So what does that mean downstream for the consumer? Service is going to be a lot better. You're going to have, instead of having just an average person working in a restaurant, it's like anything else. The best people are going to get hired and you're going to see the best people working in restaurants. So I think service, I think quality of product, and I think um, quality of the actual goods, quality of what's being delivered to the table is going to be a lot better um, at the end of the day. And then I think the relationship between tenants, landlords, I think that dynamic is going to change a little bit because like we said, the landlords don't necessarily have the same leverage that they've always had. Um, you know, they don't have the same um, proximity or the ability to uh, remove tenants like they did. There's a moratorium currently on evictions and UDs. So they don't have that leverage. And also when you don't have a hot market with a lot of tenants lining up to take spaces, um, you know, you don't have as many options behind a current tenant. So I think landlords are going to work with tenants a lot more in order to make things favorable, at least in the short term. I don't foresee that happening for a long, long time. But I see in the short-term tenants and landlords, that conversation really opening up a lot more than it has in the past. And then I think the last, the last one is vendors. Um, vendors are going to have to be, they're going to have to offer better terms. They're going to have to offer more specials. They're going to have to be more cognizant of the smaller client base that they do have. And they're going to have to give those clients better service. So I think from the individual restaurant standpoint, if you're able to weather this storm and reopen You've got all these factors that make it a nice environment to reopen in, in my opinion, as long as the customers come back. And I think that's the X factor. I think the X factor is, are people going to be comfortable enough to come out of their homes, come into a restaurant, sit down, if they have to wear a mask or if they have to sit in you know tables of two only and not four and sit six feet away from the next table and servers have masks on, what does that do to the customer experience and whether that makes people want to go out and spend money or not. So that to me is the X factor, but I do think the operating environment for the individual restaurant, maybe not macro, because obviously from a sales tax base, from a, you know, a right. governmental revenue base, it's going to be a little bit lower if there's less small businesses. And also from a, a commercial real estate standpoint, if there's lots of vacancies and there's, you know, there's, there's not tenants to fill those, that's a, that's a challenge for the landlords. But if you're a single restaurant opening, reopening after this in the next six to 12 months, I think there's a ton of pent up demand. And I think that the operating environment is going to be a lot more favorable to the individual restaurant. So, Philip, let me um, let me just turn to Michael here. Michael, do you have any final thoughts on this subject today? Well, I, I, Philip, I couldn't agree with you more. That's very well spoken and and uh, and inspiring. And and uh, all the best and good luck to you in your future ventures. Thank you, guys. Thanks for having me again. I really appreciate it. Hey, Philip, you've been terrific, and uh, you are well spoken. You obviously know the business, and I, I always think that when things like this happen, there's a little bit of unfortunately economic Darwinism. Um, folks like you will will survive and will persevere. And, you know, our job is to try to make sure that, that perhaps everyone has a fair chance of getting their insurance claims paid. Uh, this is Brian Kabatek. Big thanks to Philip Camino today for as our guest. Uh, to my colleague here, Michael Childress, uh, thank sure. you for joining us, both of you. And this is Civil Action with Brian Kabatek. You can always reach us with your comments at kbklawyers.com. Find us where podcasts are found. 
Remember, most of our podcasts involve a discussion about recent cases and recent authority that's come down. Uh, So hopefully tune in and listen to that. But in the meantime, stay safe, everybody. Thank you all very much for being with us.